The first declared heat season is underway in Miami-Dade County, and we're not talking the NBA playoffs. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Danny Rivero, filling in for Tom Hudson. Broward County gears up to fix its troubled 911 call centers and finds itself in direct competition with neighboring Palm Beach County. What does it mean for Broward County residents and the ability of police and fire rescue to respond to emergencies? Plus, in the middle of a nationwide wave of union organizing, we take a look at the state of unions in South Florida. How's labor doing in a hot job market when workers have more leverage than they've had in a long time? And how does Florida being a right-to-work state impact that? All that and more on the South Florida Roundup, made possible by Willie the Bee Man, bee removal specialist. I'm Danny Rivero. Welcome to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Three weeks ago, a Sun Sentinel investigation showed that thousands of 911 calls have gone unanswered in Broward County. According to this investigation, the number of abandoned calls has risen over the past three years. Two weeks ago, Broward County Sheriff Gregory Tony said on the F- South Florida Roundup that they've been losing emergency dispatchers and call takers because they've been unable to raise salaries. After a recent commission meeting, the Broward County Sheriff's Office may just get the money it needs. At a Broward County commission meeting held this Tuesday, emergency dispatchers and call takers learned that they may receive immediate pay raises to combat this. However, this may only help with one aspect of a much larger problem. Have you had to remain on hold with 911 in Broward County? Has your call gone unanswered? Call us at 800-743-WLRN. That's 800-743-9576. And you can also tweet us at WLRN. Joining us now to talk about this is Brittany Wallman, the investigations editor for The Sun Sentinel. Brittany, thank you so much for coming on. All right, Brittany, are you with us? I'm with you. (laughs) Sorry about that. Thank you so much for coming on. Of course. So just to to give us um, a rundown of these multiple issues that Broward County is facing in regards to its 911 dispatch, what did your recent investigation cover uncover at the Sun Sentinel? Well, you know, the Broward's regional 911 system has had all manner of problems with radios and that sort of thing. We were focused solely on the the staffing shortages we started hearing back in december that um calls were going unanswered people were calling 911 and no one was answering the phone and that was so mind-blowing and then uh we we heard that you know a baby might have died which again we were very shocked to find out that that was true and the you know they had Someone had called 911 about a dying baby and no one answered and the baby died. And so we looked into this. We found that, um, you know, just last year alone, there were 166,000 calls made to Broward 911 that were hung. You know, they were hang ups. The person either didn't get through or maybe they misdialed or what have you. Um, Then we looked um, at the staffing. That's Um, not a small number. I mean, it's huge. I know they said a lot of, you know, for whatever reason, Apple Watches accidentally called 911 quite a bit, they said. 
um, that's going to be in there too. But you could tell from the numbers and the trend that there's been a, a large increase in people not getting through and hanging up. And then we were hearing stories from people saying that that was true. So um, we looked at the staffing. Uh, I mean, people are quitting, you know, there's, they're understaffed, but it's not just a lack of getting people to take that job. People take the job and then they quit within months. And you mentioned the case of a baby that might have died. It really speaks to the potential ramifications if people can't connect with with 911 services. Um, Is this the case in unincorporated Broward County as well as incorporated areas like Fort Lauderdale, Weston and unincorporated? Uh, Broward is almost entirely incorporated now. Um, There's just a small portion, maybe 10,000 people in unincorporated. They also use this system, but Broward has 31 cities, 29 of them uh, use this regional system. So it's it's the the entire county, except for Plantation and Coral Springs, are affected by this. And can you help us understand just what is Broward's call system? Who pays for it? Who manages it? And how is how are those dynamics coming into play with this? Sure. About six or seven years ago, um, the county and the city leaders got together and said, you know, this is so disjointed. This would be so much better if we just created a regional system for emergency 911 for answering the calls as well as dispatching help. And so, you know, I mean, there were a zillion meetings were held about how they could do this and it would save money and it would be safer and, and all that. And from the get go, um, oh, and they raised property taxes countywide, the county did, uh, to pay for this. And from the get go, um, it was, they had huge problems. Um, you know, the call takers didn't know Margate from Southwest ranches, um, you know, there were that sort of problems. When the Parkland shooting occurred, there were radio problems. So, you know, if you wrote out a timeline, I mean, it would be hard to find any span of time where this system was, you know, the success that everyone hoped it would be. And now, you know, you have this, this, I mean, it couldn't be worse, I don't think, than having your your apartment on fire and you call 911 and, and it just rings and rings. And how does this system, as it exists now in Broward County, and specifically the pay of these dispatchers, how does that compare to other parts of South Florida, like Palm Beach County, just to the north? Well, that that's a key issue. Um, I mean, it's not just in nine one one, but so many industries have had you know the Great Resignation and people are quitting. Right. And so here you have a job where now you don't need a college degree. So it's accessible to people without a criminal record, but um, it, the pay range it starts at thirty-seven, just short of thirty-eight thousand, um, up to seventy-two thousand in Broward. In Palm, though, uh, it starts at, at fifty-one. And the thing is, you don't have to relocate to, to go work there. So you, you know, I mean, you can drive or take the train. So that's the issue. Um, that's about that, a twenty percent uh, higher rate of pay in Palm Beach County. Huge. And not only that, it it's they don't have as many calls, so it, it might be less stressful for more pay. So um, definitely the sheriff uh, in Broward felt like he was losing employees to Palm. Uh, I don't that's not entirely the issue, but it's definitely an issue because, as he said, that might not be why everybody's quitting, but it would be a heck of a lot more palatable to deal with a 
stressful workplace if you were making if you felt well compensated. And a recent Sun Sentinel article took a closer look at the hiring records from the Broward County wide emergency centers. What what did you all find at the Sun Sentinel and how does that stack up to what the sheriff's office has said in the past about this? Well, you know, we found that it was not some picture where everybody is leaving to go work for Palm Beach County. Um, it was a very small sliver of people that said they were quitting for another job. And they've lost a couple hundred people in, a, you know, just a year and change. I mean, most people. Just at the call center? Yes. I mean, in Broward, you're, the job requires you to be a call taker and a dispatcher. So that's the job. You do both things. Um, and, you know, it's very busy and very stressful. And most, uh, you know, the, they are losing, I think it was 61% of the people who took the job then quit uh, within the year. Uh, the vast majority quit, um, you know, within four to six months. Um, just, you know, we heard from people that worked there. They, they did their training and then they started on the phones and they're just like, you know, it's 12 hour days with a lot of pressure to work overtime. So imagine for 16 hours answering the call for people that are, you know, in some kind of state of emergency. I mean, right, uh, right. you know, they're right. Um, I'm Danny Rivero. You're listening to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We're speaking with Brittany Wallman, an investigative reporter and editor at the Sun Sentinel about and we're speaking to her about the troubled 911 call system in Broward County. Brittany, you were just talking about the 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 many hiring issues um have these been accelerating in in recent months and recent years yeah we did find you know because this sheriff has only been in that um office for a couple years um and it you know it mashes up with the pandemic and resignations in a lot of fields yes definitely um, an increase in turnover and, and also we see an increase in, um, you know, unanswered 911 calls at the same time. So this is something that has sort of reached a fever pitch and is, it's really, it is a crisis. I mean, government, you know, they do a lot of things that they'll spend months studying methodically. This is something that is a crisis. And to that point at uh, the commission meeting this week, there was some tension between Sheriff Tony and some commissioners. Can you tell us about that? That was interesting to watch. Um, the sheriff, you know, does not like to be, um, you know, criticized that way because he's he what happened was uh, one of the commissioners was saying this is a management problem. You know, this isn't just pay. Uh, this is a hostile workplace. I've talked to people that work there. They said that these are not work good working conditions. We need to bring in some, we need to take this away from you. Uh, or because the county, Brown in order county, to change the morale for such an important service, I yeah, guess is the argument. they were saying maybe we need to hire somebody from outside and, and get this thing going. And the sheriff, uh, really took umbrage to that and said, you know, when you get elected sheriff, then you can tell me how, how to do my job. Um, and, you know, he's asking for pay raises for the and it looks like he'll get it for the uh, 911 workers. And was there any comments about just the management structure, the fact that the, the Broward Sheriff's Office is primarily managing this? Is there a potential that it could be taken away from the sheriff's office entirely? 
Yeah, if I had to guess or put my money on something, I think the current, I think there will be agreement and there is already that the current setup where you have, it's operated by the Broward Sheriff's Office, but over his shoulder, you have Broward County and nine commissioners. Um, that's just too many cooks in, in the kitchen, as the mayor said. I think, um, you know, they're going to need to decide whether uh, should the county take this over and get the sheriff out of the picture or should, you know, the sheriff take over and get the county out of the picture. But something has to happen. Um, and, you know, and but immediately they need to raise the pay so that they don't lose uh, the workers that they have. And to that point, how quickly could the commission actually act on this? Because as you mentioned, this is uh, we're pretty much in crisis territory here where 911 calls are going unanswered. Like how fast can this happen? Correct. They have their next meeting um, two Tuesdays from now, May 24th, I believe. If they voted at that meeting, I mean, their budget year doesn't start till October. So what they were saying was, let's get a pay raise much sooner than that. So it could happen, um, you know, over the summer rather than next fall. Um, and I think we will see that it'll be significant pay bump of more than $10,000. I mean, that that's, um, that's a significant pay increase that I think would go a long way towards making the current employees feel valued and, and make it, you know, what they're going through worth it a little more. Well, Brittany Wallman, investigative editor at the Sun Sentinel. Thank you so much for joining us, Brittany. Thank you. Keep following. We'll be following the story for a while. We'll keep paying attention. Thank you. Still to come, how does South Florida look amidst a nationwide wave of union organizing? I'm Danny Rivero. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. South Florida, sorry to say it, but it's time to wave goodbye to the cool winter months and say hi to the heat. Starting on May 1st, Miami-Dade County has declared the first ever heat season, which will run through the end of October. Miami-Dade Mayor Daniela Levine-Cava made that announcement last October at a United Nations Climate Summit in Scotland. And this will be the season in which we will be on alert just as we are for hurricanes. Our shelters will be ready uh, to go. If needed, we will create shelter space for those who cannot safely stay in their homes because of a heat wave. And uh, we will do this with the support of our chief heat officer, but also the heat task force, which is focusing on vulnerable populations, those who are least likely to be able to afford to live in places that will stay naturally cool. I mean, we're not cutting down the trees for wo for fire, wood, uh, not, but we are having so many people that are living in substandard conditions, cannot pay utility bills, do not have working air conditions, uh, or they work in the field and they need to have respite. This is the first ever heat season declared in the United States. In response to the fact that as global warming becomes more of an unescapable reality, the days are indeed getting hotter. So what are the safety implications of this new reality for South Florida? How is that going to impact outdoor workers? Can anything be done about it? 
Have you noticed the summer is getting warmer? How are you keeping cool? Going to the beach, cranking up the AC? Give us a call at 800-743-WLRN. That's 800-743-9576. You can also tweet us at WLRN. Joining us now to discuss this is Jane Gilbert, the chief heat officer of Miami-Dade County. And also joining us is Oscar Londoño, the executive director of the agricultural workers and advocacy group We Count, which is based out of Homestead. Jane and Oscar, thank you both for coming on. A pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Danny. Good to be on. So first, Jane, let's start with you. Um, Just to give us a little bit of context here, how much hotter have the South Florida summers gotten in compared to, say, a generation ago? And what kind of temperatures should we be expecting in the future, you know, with some of the models that are floating around? Yeah, thank you. So we've we've had since 1985, we now have 40 more days a year on average with temperatures over 90 degrees. And with our higher average humidity in the summer being around 60, 70% on any given day, that can be a heat index of 100 or more, which is uh, quite high. And we're expecting to have increases going forward at much more high heat index. And here in Miami, heat index, the combination of temperature and humidity is a very important factor because the humidity makes it harder for us to regulate heat. So uh, we currently have an average of about seven days a year with a heat index of 105. By mid-century, we're expecting that to expand to close to three months a year with 88 days. That is a very large increase we're expecting. Oscar, agricultural workers like the ones you work with in South Dade are really at the front lines of what these hotter days actually mean to humans, to individuals. I want to ask you, what is that impact? What kind of things are you hearing from agricultural workers? Yeah, thank you, Danny. Um, yeah, about last year, a we count launched a campaign called De Calor. After years of hearing reports from farm workers and plant nursery workers here in South Miami-Dade, who would come into our office reporting that they were getting dizzy, they were fainting on the job, they didn't have basic protections like water, shade, and rest. And for years, they had been sounding the alarm. Uh, and so we have commissioned research and studies and found that here in South Florida, many outdoor workers, not just in agriculture, but also in construction and landscaping, don't have basic life-saving protections, things like water, shade, and rest, to make sure that they can actually work uh, with dignity. So part of our work right now has been to try to educate outdoor workers on the risk of extreme heat and also see what kind of local and statewide solutions we can win. And just just for our listeners, um, the, the peak agricultural season for us down here is kind of in the winter months where we're, we're coming up at the very end of that. Um, that's when we grow things like tomato and squash. But what kinds of of goods are agricultural workers helping grow in these ridiculously hot summer months right now? Yeah, so there are crops that are still being um, sort of cultivated in the summer months. In terms of agriculture, there's both food agriculture, but a big industry here in South Florida are plant nurseries. These are the plants that workers grow that we use to beautify our homes, our offices, our our gardens and green spaces. That's year-round production. And so we know that it's not just food agricultural workers, but also plant nursery workers, construction workers, landscapers, more than 300,000 workers in in South Florida alone work in outdoor industries. 
And just for some context for our listeners, the flowers and tropical ornamental plants, are, it's a massive and important part of the state economy. It's over $4 billion in sales per year, according to the Florida Department of Agriculture. So it's really not a small thing. And a lot of that's concentrated in South Florida. Um, Jane, you were named by Mayor Daniela Levine-Cava as the first chief heat officer in the U.S. What role does the county government potentially play in all this and in, in maybe addressing it? I mean, because we were talking about Mother Nature here on some level, but yeah. what, what role can government play here? Well, I mean, the good news is there is a lot we can do to both prevent heat-related illnesses and to uh, reduce the economic burdens associated with extreme heat. So we look at interventions both on those that can mitigate our urban heat islands. So we have increasing temperatures here in Miami-Dade County, not only due to climate change, but also to our development patterns. Because we have more impervious surfaces, less tree canopy in certain areas, they have much hotter land surface temperatures and ambient air it can be 10 degrees difference in different neighborhoods. And those that have the least tree canopy and the most impervious surfaces also tend to be our lower income neighborhoods. Those, so they're, they're doubly exposed and then they're having to pay more for their air conditioning when they're already cost burdened. So there's a lot we can do at the county and city levels to increase our tree canopy, maintain the tree canopy that we have to create cooler surfaces, to incentivize cool roofs. Um, and then on the other side, for managing the heat that we already have and know we, we're going to have going forward, we want to get the word out on how people can protect themselves. We wanna, we're working with We Count. Oscar Londonio serves on our Climate Heat Health Task Force, and we had a whole section focused on outdoor workers specifically because they are so much more exposed than other people to, to the heat extremes. And they can be up to 35 times more likely to have a heat-related illness. Right. So having so, the kind of protections he talked about is really important. And we'll, we'll, we'll get more into that in a second. But we have a caller, Remy in, in Perrine. You're on the line. Welcome to South well, Florida Roundup. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, your guests were already touched on it. Yeah, have a create a microclimate by having more of a tree canopy. It, it immediately gets cooler underneath. But also, a flip side to that is stop paving over the county. If you decide to pave your backyard, at least use brick pavers so that the water can actually filter through and recharge the aquifer. The way it is now, people just pour concrete, and all you get is water runoff straight to, straight to the sewage system and out into the bay which I guess it's related, not exactly the same, but it's related to it. Right. Thank, thank, no, thank, thank, you, great... thank you so much for the, for the call, Remy. Um, I'm Danny Rivero filling in for Tom Hudson. You're listening to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. And we're talking about Miami-Dade announcing its first official heat season running from May 1st through Halloween. Joining us is Chief Heat Officer of Miami-Dade, Jane Gilbert, and also the Executive Director of We Count, Oscar Londoño. Have you noticed the day is getting hotter? What are you doing to keep cool? What should the government be doing to help? Call us at 800-743-WLRN. That's 800-743-9576. Um, 
Jane, um, coming off of what what Remy was just telling us in that in that call, the the county has a goal of getting to thirty percent tree cover by twenty thirty, in large part to help these these heat islands. Um, but between twenty sixteen and twenty twenty one, as I've reported for WLRN, there was statistically no significant change across the whole county. Can you help parse out to us why that might be and how do we move forward and actually make progress on that? Yeah. And I want to say the county made great progress the five years prior to that, significant progress. But but um, we had Hurricane Irma, and we've also had just incredible growth in this county in that time. And so we lost a lot of trees in Irma. A lot of them have been replaced by our city and county governments. But um, yeah, on the public right away, there may not have been as much on the private. We only control uh, about 80, 20% of the land cover in public institutions, not just the county, but public institutions broadly. Um, so it's really important that one, our county and partnering with our city governments, we have a, we have a matching grant program through our Million Trees Miami for city governments also focused on mitigating their um, heat islands through tree canopy. We are working with schools. We had a tree giveaway at Turner Tech High School last Saturday, uh, where we gave away uh, long lawn trees, which people love the fruit. They also provide great canopy. Right. And we'll have adopt-a-tree events in neighborhoods in June, July, August, and September. Right. And and just just to clarify what I was saying earlier, the, the, the study found that there was no significant change in tree cover across the whole county, but there are parts of the county that gained a lot yeah. and other parts lost a lot, but the average has not shifted too much. Right. So uh, what um, we're uh, trying, the, trying to uh, do is really accelerate the work where the tree canopy is the lowest in areas that like are 10 percent or lower is our highest priority like hialeah program through our adopt a tree and through our actual planning in the parks and public right-of-ways got it those are the critical areas that we need to be focused on so oscar you all at we count as you mentioned earlier have been campaigning for legislation that would possibly bring some protection to outdoor workers during especially these heat waves that are becoming more and more common um, as you mentioned, the name of that campaign is Kekalor. Can you tell us what kind of protections you, you're hoping that workers might be able to get? Sure. And this is really building off of the leadership that we've seen with County Mayor Daniel Livinkava and Jane Gilbert in prioritizing extreme heat and recognizing that outdoor workers are really uniquely vulnerable to this crisis. And if we don't act now, uh, we're going to see a public health and economic crisis unfold. Uh, states like California, Washington, more recently Oregon, have already passed statewide legislation providing basic protections, making sure that outdoor workers have education on the risks of heat, have first aid measures in place if they or a co-worker experience a heat-related illness event, have access to drinking water that is safe and cool, and can take recovery periods. So every couple of hours, a 10-minute paid break under shade to make sure their body can cool down under the extreme heat. And we believe that Miami-Dade County can actually be a, a leader on this issue. Uh, earlier this year, we tried to pass uh, bipartisan legislation in Tallahassee. It did pass unanimously through the Second Agricultural Committee, but unfortunately it did die in committee. And we believe that Miami-Dade County can actually pass a first of its kind countywide heat standard for outdoor workers, which would replicate some of the same best practices that we've seen in other states, 
making sure that outdoor workers have the education they need, as well as supervisors, making sure there's first aid and emergency procedures, access to drinking water, and paid shaded recovery periods every two hours so that workers can drink water, be under shade, cool down, and continue working. And it's my understanding this would be one of the first local government level kind of regulations of this kind um, if this does indeed pass. Is that right? So there have been cities that have passed uh, more limited regulations. In Dallas, for example, there's a water break ordinance in construction, uh, but this would be the first comprehensive countywide standard for outdoor workers across the country. And we will be following that as it as it moves on. Jane, to, to bring you back into it, a lot of housing in Miami-Dade still does not have air conditioning. Um, a lot of older homes, some my old neighbor didn't have air conditioning by choice, if you can imagine that. But some people don't have air conditioning not by choice. Um, what should someone do if things get so hot someday that they simply don't feel safe in their own homes? Is there some kind of resource that is being offered by the county to help people stay cool in extreme heat events? Yes, and thank you for the question. Actually, Miami-Dade County is one of the highest air conditioning penetration in the country. Um, so we do have very high, but there are people that either by choice to your point, or sometimes it's they had a wall unit that was keeping their bedroom cool and it broke down and they can't afford to replace it. And or it's just not working when it we've got a heat index of 105. Or maybe or the utility bill working. is too high and they don't want to turn or it Or the on. utility bill is too high. So one, we have for the utility bill challenge, we have a program that is federally funded through our Community Action and Human Services Department called um, LIHEAP. That's a big acronym, but it's really if people just look up utility assistance on the county website, they will find it um, to help people pay their bills when it's gets difficult. But really, uh, in that moment, when they don't have a place to cool down, they they can go our, our park facilities and our library serve as cooling centers, generally. And uh, that that's one option that is pretty accessible to to everyone in the county. But another option is to look at, you know, malls, movie theaters, uh, other places to go to cool down a cool if it's if it's cool enough under a, a well shaded tree that can be a good place to go um, so there are different options for people and we're gonna take a call here Ian and, and Coral Gables welcome to the South Florida Roundup you're on the line hi I have a, I have a question for, for Jane um, is there any uh, sense of increased urgency uh, about better bus network uh, given that the people who, who rely on transit the most usually are the ones who are also the most vulnerable to heat. And, you know, Miami-Dade, firstly, has a lot of bus stops that are entirely uncovered. Yes. Thanks. Great question. Very important question. They, there are far too many uncovered bus stops. So, yes, I've been in conversation with our transportation department. They do have funding to install uh, a few hundred bus stop uh, shelters this summer and we're using our data on our urban heat islands combined with their data from the better bus network on the the most uh used bus lines within those areas of our urban heat islands to prioritize the placement of those bus stops 
So I'm hoping that by by you know August we'll we'll have a lot more. We're also working with our university partners on sensors to identify where the highest needs are. Thank you. So this one's for for both of you. Um, so I've spent a significant amount of time in the Middle East and. Things get so hot in the summer there that a lot of construction companies and even some agricultural companies and operations have actually switched to working in at the nighttime or really in the trying to do things early in the morning or late in the afternoon to avoid those middle day hours. Can Oscar, it'll start with you. Can you foresee a future where something like that might be necessary in Miami-Dade County? Absolutely. I, I think in, in Phoenix more recently, they did pass regulations to try to think about uh, what are the cooler uh, work hours in construction. I think locally, there are some adaptations we can put, put into place now, like water, shade and rest in outdoor workplaces long term as it becomes hotter and hotter, uh, as we've seen across the world in areas like construction and agriculture, we may need to think about how to accommodate different kinds of work schedules, whether it's in the evening, early hours, to make sure that it's not too hot to work. And Jane, do you want to pick up on that at all? I definitely uh, just would concur with Oscar that, you know, we did see that with Phoenix where they actually uh, not only allowed construction to start earlier, like 5 a.m., but the Home Depot's also complied in opening at that time so that so that they could uh, work in different hours. That is something that we're going to need to look at in going forward. I foresee a battle with neighbors on that one, 5 a.m. construction. But, but Oscar, uh, I wanted to ask you, you have been spreading information about the dangers of extreme heat um, and how workers might be able to protect themselves. H how are you connecting with a lot of these outdoor workers, you know, especially in in the agricultural field, it's um, at least government wise, it's it's kind of a notorious population in in the in the sense that it's it's hard to reach a lot of a lot of people, especially a lot of them are are Spanish speaking, not English speaking. Um, can you just tell us how you're getting the word out about how to stay safe? Sure. So we we have organizers and member leaders who uh, go out to the farms, the fields, the nurseries, the construction sites, and talk to workers directly. We have multilingual flyers that we distribute uh, to make sure that workers have information on what the risks are, uh, what are the symptoms of heat illness, uh, who to call if you're experiencing a heat-related illness event. We also have a community radio station called Radio Poder. Uh, it's on low power FM radio in South Dade. Uh, where we broadcast heat-related PSAs. We've begun to generate more over this heat season in both Spanish, but also in native Mayan dialects. We know that there is a sizable population of both Guatemalan and Mexican migrants in Homestead in Florida City who speak dialects like Mom, Ixil, Campobal, and others. And so we make sure that whether it's through our field outreach, our radio outreach, and just worker-to-worker -worker education, that we're making sure that the thousands of outdoor workers out there who are laboring under the sun have all of the resources they need uh, to stay safe. Got it. And and Jane, um, what's the, the the county up to in 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 terms of of the messaging? Um, yeah, you know, we're at the very beginning of the heat season. We just had a, a cool couple days, but we probably won't get too many of those anymore. Yeah, and we had some record high days right before that. But mm -hmm. these cool days are are well received. Um, so we launched a thirty second uh, 
uh, video PSA. We're doing radio PSAs also in English and Spanish and posters in, in Spanish and Haitian Creole. Uh, those are going to get distributed in various areas and, and really targeting the zip codes that we've seen the highest heat-related illnesses and hospitalizations. Um, we're also doing um, uh, education through our disaster volunteers, person to person. We've done a heat enhancement training for disaster volunteers in those neighborhoods with uh, heat response kits and <clears throat> doing a uh, social media campaign, bus stops, buses, and billboards in those various zip codes as well. So, so it's kind of an all wraparound messaging. We welcome partners like We Count. The Women's Fund has done some billboards specifically uh, calling out the vulnerability of pregnant women to extreme heat. And it's those kind of partnerships that we welcome. We did a cool roof campaign with, with Coors Light that painted some roofs white and, and is raising awareness about that. We welcome those kind of partnerships as well to get the word out. Jane Gilbert is the chief heat officer of Miami-Dade County, and Oscar Londoño is the executive director of We Count. Jane and Oscar, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Thank you Still to come, after a high-profile victory at a Miami Springs Starbucks, we're talking about the state of unions in South Florida. I'm Danny Rivero. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. The percentage of workers in the United States that are represented by a union last year hit the lowest point it's ever had since the government started tracking it. And that's according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Unions represent about half the percentage of workers they represented four decades ago. But has it hit rock bottom? Well, we start to see it trend back up. A recent wave of unionization efforts has been sweeping the country, impacting huge corporations like Apple, Amazon, and Starbucks. The first Starbucks to win its vote to unionize in South Florida happened this week at a shop in Miami Springs. And several other stores have recently won elections in Florida. What's the state of unions in South Florida? Are you in a union? Do you want to be? Are you strongly against unions? Call us at 800-743-WLRN. That's 800-743-9576. You can also tweet us at WLRN. Joining us now is Christian Miranda, one of the Starbucks workers who recently won union representation at the Miami Springs Starbucks. And also joining us is Helene O'Brien, the Florida director of 32BJ SEIU, a union that represents many janitors and custodial workers in South Florida. So... When politicians win elections, we tell them congratulations for their victory, no matter which party they belong to. Christian, I know you're not a politician, but you did just win an election in the effort to unionize your Starbucks. Congratulations on your victory. Thank you. I really appreciate it. <laughs> and so, Christian, what, what was it that made you and your coworkers start to pursue creating a union at your Starbucks? Like, what was the spark that, that started that first conversation? Well, it was a mixture of things, um, definitely mostly to do with the, the working conditions in our store and how we felt that over time, you know, they were declining. Um, 
you know, we, we also saw, you know, our workload increase significantly since the pandemic started and continue to increase uh, even, you know, years into it. And we didn't see a comparable increase in our wages and our benefits and in, in our overall um, you know, working conditions. And, you know, push came to shove and we, we felt a bit you know, fed up with that. And this is all happening in the context of just a sharp rise in prices of everything. The cost of living in South Florida has gone up faster than anywhere else in the in the country during the pandemic. Did that play a role in this, too? Just the cost of people keeping a roof over their heads? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it, a, a conversation that we have all the time is, you know, this idea that, you know, this is a, a multi-billion dollar company, you know, a, a multi-billion dollar, you know, international company at that, that has been seeing the biggest, um, you know, profit margins that it's ever seen in its history. And, you know, we're still making, you know, what what's soon to be minimum wage in Florida. And Christian, you're 19. You also go to school at Florida International University. I, I want to ask you, like, what do these discussions look like on campus or with other people your age who might just be getting into college and work life? Is union something that's become part of just everyday chatter? Uh, yeah, I'd say so. I'd, I'd say that, you know, um, my generation or at least the, the people I interact with on a daily basis, you know, on campus or, or when I'm out and about, you know, people are, are are fed up with with you know their working conditions, and they're fed up with not having enough to to really sustain themselves without living paycheck to paycheck. So even if they don't know what a union is or or the history of the you know the labor movement in the United States, they they're kind of um, going toward that direction anyway. And Helene, first of all, welcome to the program. Um, Thank you. Helene, we, we've we've heard a lot of this wave of Starbucks unionizations and also some efforts at Amazon facilities, a few Apple stores in some parts of the country. But you work in perhaps some of the less shiny areas of unionizing and, and, and working directly with janitors and custodian custodial workers and helping them organize. Um, can you tell me uh, what kind of services do these workers provide? Sure. Um, and thanks so much for, you know, having this as a topic. Um, our members are uh, in the property services industry. So in South Florida, that's janitors, that's security officers. Um, it's the people who clean airplanes um, on the inside, folks who, you know, load bags on and off the plane and, and also um, wheelchair pushers. Um, and in the past few years, we have been able to successfully help over a thousand janitors who clean shiny buildings all the fancy luxury buildings in the commercial real estate market in south florida um, or many most of them uh for the longest time have been making you know these buildings in the commercial real estate industry in general have been have been growing and it's been a booming industry with tons of profits and yet the janitors uh three years ago were the lowest paid janitors in the united states so you had um the highest some of the the most expensive real estate in the world and the lowest paid janitors and those janitors organized um, a thousand of them and uh, they did a couple of things one they supported very very heavily the fight the 15 dollars minimum wage ballot initiative um, they were campaigning knocking on doors doing lots of media and we're thrilled that it passed and then the other is they organized um the, a union successfully and they just won their first collective bargaining agreement where they're getting 
um, a raise right now of a dollar an hour and then another raise in October. So they're getting $2 raises this year. Plus for the first time, they're getting five paid sick, paid time, pay, paid days off, which very few, especially um, part-time janitors would ever have. So, um, and then next year they'll continue to get increases. So we're really excited um, about the effort that they've been able to accomplish. Those are not small things. $2 might no. sound small, but multiply it across paychecks and across a year, it's not a small thing at all. Uh, yeah. We we have we have a caller on the line, Derek, from Pembroke Pines. Uh, you're on the line. Thank, welcome to the South Florida Roundup. Oh, thank you very much. I love listening to this show. Yeah. So, um, did you want me to give a comment, or do you want to ask a question? <laughs> um, do you have any comment? Uh, what What are your thoughts on oh, yeah. on unions? Well, unions are awesome. Let me tell you something. I make one hundred and ten thousand dollars a year. I'm able to. Um, to afford a house, you know, it's great. Number one thing that I love about the unions is it's non-discriminatory. Are you for, this, are, are you a member of a union? Oh yeah, IBEW, International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers. It is it's it's you know it's an awesome union. Uh, there's no discrimination, man, woman. Um, there's there's I work there's girls you know that, that are young, they're like in their twenties or whatever, and there's no discrimination. This whole is black, white, um, Spanish, whatever. It doesn't matter. Everybody's a brother and a sister. That's how we treat each other. They teach you that. Unions fought for, um, that's why you have a 40-hour work week with weekends. Unions fought for that. You know, the, the people that are that are also working in electrical trades, they're, 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 you know, I see them getting treated like junk. They're making $15, $16, $17 an hour. So okay, you, that's, you, that's, you, that's, you, you, it sounds like you credit a lot of your personal success to the union. That's, um, we'll, we'll, we'll take that. All to the union. Th- all th- the- thank you. Thank you so much, Derek. I really appreciate it. Christian, back to you. Um, how much, you know, the, the first major Starbucks unionization victory was out of Buffalo, New York. Um, and it seems like that really is a thing that sparked this, this wave going across the country that we've seen. Um, what do you recall about about seeing that that first victory? Um, well, uh, at my store in particular, you know, we were even having, you know, these these discussions about you know possibly pursuing a union election even before oh. uh, Buffalo had won their vote. Um, but absolutely, once you know they they kind of took the reins on that and they they successfully did it and they did it in a very uh, hostile environment. You know, the, the first. Uh, they were the first, you know, uh, stores to to attempt to unionize. Uh, so Starbucks threw everything at them, you know, shutting down stores, you know, constantly having them go to anti-union meetings, and they did it. So when we saw that they could do it under those conditions, you know, we we knew for a fact that there was nothing stopping us. And when, you know, our our, our friends up north in Tallahassee filed for their election, that was only even more of a reason to, to you know, know that we didn't have much to fear at all. And Helene, Florida is, of course, a right to work state, which means no worker can be forced to pay union dues, even if they benefit from a union contract and organizing. Um, how much does that fact impact the ability to organize or keep unions here in South Florida? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I mean, I actually believe um, that there the political conditions and the legal conditions for organizing a union are are difficult in florida um but it's not because of right to work i mean 
it's because, I mean, there's such a, a few number of workers that are in a union that most people don't know folks in a union. I believe in Florida, it's something like 94% of workers are not in a union. Um, and that and that's statewide, and that's including police and fire and and public and teachers. So um, so it's hard to know what a union is. And so the only way to know is by doing it. Um, at our union, we invest very heavily in organizing. We believe in democracy. We believe in the First Amendment and the right to peaceful assembly for people to get together, whether you get together in your community to make improvements in the park, or you get together at work to make improvements at your job. Um, now there's lots of laws, unfortunately, that have happened over the past hundred years that really um, disadvantage the workers. But at the end of the day, we still live in a democracy. People can organize, unions have to invest and people have to learn. And so I'm, I'm thrilled and, and, with and the victory. Sorry to cut you off. Um, one last thing quickly. President Biden promised to be the most pro-labor president in the U.S. ever. Um, do you think the trend might be changing? Are, are unions going up um, or should we expect them to go up? Uh, very, very quickly, Christian. Um, yes. okay, go ahead, Christian. And, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, certainly from, you know, talking to people within you know, the company I work for and just with other people, you know whether they're friends that work at you know different retail stores or other things like that um you know, it's definitely something that i think a lot of people are having conversations about got it thank you so i'm apologize very much we're gonna have to to leave it there that's christian miranda one of the starbucks workers who recently won union representation at the miami spring starbucks and helene o'brien with 32bj seiu that's the that'll do it for the South Florida Roundup. It's produced by Natu Twe. Our engagement editor is Katie Cohen. Our news director is Terrence Shepard. Alicia Zuckerman is our editorial director. Jessica Bakeman is a senior editor of news. The director of radio operations and shows technical supervisor is Peter J. Mares. Richard Ives answers phones. I'm Danny Rivero. Thank you so much for calling in and for listening. This program is made possible by Willie the Bee Man, bee removal specialist. WLRN Public Media.